Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report here on WMCK.FM Internet Radio in McKeesport, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. The show is heard Sunday at 4 p.m. and Thursday at 9 a.m. Podcasts of these shows are available on WMCK.FM slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. So welcome to the show. If you're a first-time listener, we deal with consumer issues here on the show. So if you have any ideas of any products or services you would like to hear about on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you have any comments or questions about anything that you hear on the show, any products or services, you can also contact me at Consumer Review Report at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So welcome to the show. Today uh, we will be talking about something I've always been curious about. I've always heard this term but I've never really known like what it is or how you invest in it, or what does mining it mean? And that term is Bitcoin. So we're going to kind of get an education on what is Bitcoin, what is Ethereum, which I've never heard of before uh, last night, I guess. But I guess it's about the same thing. Um, Also, um. You know, we're going to talk about what's the differences between the two. And then uh, later on, we will talk about uh, some of the scams that could come up regarding Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, how to avoid those because, again, we want to put scammers out of business. Also, later in the show, um, there's a video, we'll hear audio uh, from a video that was posted on YouTube by the Wall Street Journal called uh, United States versus China, the battle for Bitcoin mining supremacy. All right. But first, I guess we got to know what Bitcoin is, what Ethereum is, and, uh, you know, what what's all that about? And now the, the, the uh, videos that were posted on YouTube by 99Bitcoins, they claim that they are going to tell us what these things are, Ethereum and Bitcoin, uh, a beginner's explanation in plain English. So they said they're not going to get too technical. So, you know, don't turn off your uh, listening apparatus, um, hopefully. And hopefully we can have a better understanding of what these are because I have no idea. And when they talk about mining Bitcoin, I'm like, you know, do you go digging into the soil like you would gold? You know, it's it's um, a concept that eludes me. So I'm going to be educated as much as you will be here on the show. So the first audio we're going to hear is from a video posted by CNBC. It's called Ethereum versus Bitcoin. What sets them apart? So why don't we go ahead and take a listen to that. 
You've probably heard of Bitcoin, but what about Ether? There's an arms race going on right now in the world of cryptocurrencies, and Bitcoin and Ether are leading the pack. Ether is a three-year-old digital currency, Bitcoin's closest competitor, and it's largely been flying under the radar despite growing at breakneck speed. Investors have been super bullish on Bitcoin because it's nearly tripled in value so far this year, but Ether, it's up roughly 4,000% year-to-date. These rivals have a lot in common. They're both open-source digital currencies used to make somewhat anonymous transactions. Ether even has digital coins just like Bitcoin. They both also saw their share of big volatile moves, the most recent when Ether virtually lost all its value in a single day in a June flash crash. It went from $319 to $0.10 on one exchange before recovering all of its losses. But here's the critical difference. While they're both powered by a type of technology called blockchain, a whole lot of people think Ether's technology is way better. So what's blockchain? Think of it like the DNA of a digital currency. It's an online ledger that records every single transaction made. Since cryptocurrency has no physical imprint, blockchain allows money to be tracked all over the web so it can't be copied or counterfeited. Ether's blockchain is called Ethereum, and unlike Bitcoin's blockchain, it features a key piece of technology called the smart contract. It doesn't just track transactions, it programs them. We have a touch of this now with automated payments and deposits, but imagine being able to have your money invest, spend, and save all on its own. You'd literally be putting your money to work for you. Smart contracts let you exchange not just money, but property, stock, really anything, without having to go through a lawyer, notary, or some other service provider. It cuts out the middleman entirely. That's why investors have taken notice, and why many think Ethereum is a stronger and potentially more lucrative technology than the one that underpins Bitcoin. It's like the ultimate vending machine. You make a deposit of the cryptocurrency for the specific product you want and all the mechanics of that transaction are automated, right down to the penalty if you don't hold up your end of the bargain. So whereas Bitcoin is all about payment technology, the Ethereum blockchain technology has other real-world applications, ranging from gambling to banking. That's why a big driver of the Ether rally is its popularity among big corporates. Just take Barclays. It's using Ethereum smart contracts as a way to trade derivatives. Either way, for all the attention that Bitcoin has been getting, it's clear it's no longer alone in the cryptocurrency conversation. Okay, so... Hey it, there, it, thanks for checking out CNBC on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. Okay, so... <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, this that audio was posted a couple years ago. So when they're saying that the Bitcoin value is skyrocketing, that was a couple years ago. It may still be, I don't know, but don't go crazy and say, oh, I've got to invest in some Bitcoin because CNBC said it's uh, skyrocketing. This was posted a couple years ago, so don't don't go crazy yet. <laughs> I still just didn't gather what is Bitcoin and what is Ethereum. Um, I, I guess my curiosity is how did it come about and who deemed it currency? You know, that that's the curiosity that I have. So hopefully 99 Bitcoins can educate us on what is a Bitcoin. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that. Welcome to 99Bitcoins.com. I'm Nate Martin, and I'll be your guide through this video series, Bitcoin Whiteboard Tuesday. We're going to cover a lot of topics such as Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin wallets, how to trade Bitcoin, and a lot more. Today, we're going to start from scratch and answer the third most searched term on Google today, what is Bitcoin? If you're worried that we're going to get too technical and use a lot of complicated words, don't. Here at 99Bitcoins, we translate Bitcoin into plain English, so even if you have no technical background, you'll be able to understand everything.
By the end of this course, you'll know more about Bitcoin and how it works than 99% of the population. So let's get started. Before we talk about Bitcoin, I want to take a moment and talk about money. What is money exactly? At its core, money represents value. If I do some work for you, you give me money in exchange for the value I gave you. I can then use that money to get something of value from someone else in the future. Throughout history, value has taken many forms, and people have used a lot of different materials to represent money. Salt, wheat, shells, and of course, gold have all been used as a medium of exchange. However, in order for something to represent value, people have to trust that it is indeed valuable and will stay valuable long enough for them to redeem that value in the future. Up until a hundred years ago or so, we always trusted in something to represent money. However, something happened along the way and we've changed our trust model from trusting something to trusting in someone. Let me explain. Over time, people found it too cumbersome to walk around the world carrying bars of gold or other forms of money, so paper money was invented. Here's how it worked. A bank or government would offer to take possession of your bar of gold, let's say worth $1,000, and in return, that bank would give you receipt certificates, which we call bills, amounting to $1,000. Not only were these pieces of paper much easier to carry, but you could spend a dollar on a cup of coffee and not have to cut your gold bar into 1,000 pieces. And if you wanted your gold back, you simply took $1,000 in bills back to the bank to redeem them for the actual form of money, in this case, that gold bar, whenever you needed. And so, paper began its use as money as an instrument of practicality and convenience. However, as time progressed and due to macroeconomic changes, this bond between the paper receipt and the gold it stands for was broken. Now, to explain the path that led us away from the gold standards is extremely complex, but suffice to say that governments told their people that the government itself would be liable for the value of that paper money. Basically, we all said, let's just forget about gold and trade paper instead. So people continued to trade with receipts that are backed by nothing but the government's promise. And why did that continue to work? Well, because of trust. Even though there is no actual commodity backing paper money, people trusted the government and that's how fiat money was created. Fiat is a Latin word that means by decree, meaning the dollars or euros or any other currency for that matter have value because the government orders it to. It's what's known as legal tender, coins or banknotes that must be accepted if offered as payment. So the value of today's money actually comes from a legal status given to it by a central authority, in this case, the government. And so the trust model has changed from trusting something to trusting someone, in this case, the government. Fiat money has two main drawbacks. One, it is centralized. You have a central authority that controls and issues it, in this case, the government or central bank. And two, it is not limited by quantity. The government or central bank can print as much as they want whenever needed and inflate the money supply on the market. The problem with printing money is that because you're flooding the market with more money, the value of each dollar drops, so your own money is worth less. When you see prices rising throughout the years, it's not necessarily that prices are rising as much as that the purchasing power of your money is dropping. You need more dollars to buy something that used to cost less. Once fiat money was in place, the move to digital money was pretty simple. 
We already have a central authority that issues money, so why not make money mostly digital and let that authority keep track of who owns what? Today, we mainly use credit cards, wire transfers, PayPal, and other forms of digital money. The amount of physical money in the world is almost negligible, and it's getting smaller with each year that passes. So if money today is digital, how does that even work? I mean, if I have a file that represents a dollar, what's to stop me from copying it a million times and having a million dollars? This is called the double spend problem. The solution that banks use today is a centralized solution. They keep a ledger on their computer which keeps track of who owns what. Everyone has an account, and this ledger keeps a tally for each account. We all trust the bank, and the bank trusts their computer, and so the solution is centralized on this ledger in this computer. You may not know this, but there were many attempts to create alternative forms of digital currencies. However, none were successful in solving the double spend problem without a central authority. Whenever you give anyone control over the money supply, you're giving them enormous power, and this creates three major issues. The first issue is corruption. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When banks have a mandate to create money or value, they basically control the flow of value in the world, which gives them almost unlimited power. A small example of how power corrupts can be seen in the Wells Fargo scandal, where employees secretly created millions of unauthorized bank and credit card accounts in order to inflate the bank's revenue stream, without their customers knowing about it for years. The second issue of a centralized system is mismanagement. If the central authority's interest isn't aligned with the people it controls, there may be a case of mismanagement of the money. For example, printing a lot of money in order to save a certain bank or institution from collapsing, as what happened in 2008. The problem with printing too much money is that it causes inflation and basically erodes the value of the citizens' money. One extreme example for this is Venezuela, where the government has printed so much money and the value of it has dropped so much that people are no longer counting money, but are weighing it instead. The last issue is control. You are basically giving away all control of your money to the government or bank. At any point in time, the government can decide to freeze your account and deny you access to your funds. Even if you use only cold hard cash, the government can cancel the legal status of your currency, as was done in India a few years back. This was the state of things until 2009. Creating an alternative to the current monetary system seemed like a lost cause, but then everything changed. In October of 2008, a document was published online by a guy calling himself Satoshi Nakamoto. The document, also called a white paper, suggested a way of creating a system for a decentralized currency called Bitcoin. This system claimed to create digital money that solves the double spend problem without the need for a central authority. At its core, Bitcoin is a transparent ledger without a central authority. But what does this confusing phrase even really mean? Well, let's compare Bitcoin to the bank. Since most money today is already digital, the bank basically manages its own ledger of balances and transactions. However, the bank's ledger is not transparent, and it's stored on the bank's main computer. You can't sneak a peek into the bank's ledger, and only the bank has complete control over it. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is a transparent ledger. At any point in time, I can sneak a peek into the ledger and see all of the transactions and balances that are taking place.
The only thing you can't figure out is who owns these balances and who is behind each transaction. This means Bitcoin is pseudo-anonymous. Everything is open, transparent, and trackable, but you still can't tell who's sending what to whom. Let's explain this with an example. You can see on your screen certain rows from Bitcoin's ledger. We can see that a certain Bitcoin address sent 10,000 Bitcoins to another Bitcoin address in May of 2010. This specific transaction is the first purchase that was ever made with Bitcoin, and it was used to buy two pizzas by a guy named Laszlo. Laszlo published a post back in 2010 asking for someone to sell him two pizzas in exchange for 10,000 bitcoins. Well, someone did, and now the price of these two pizzas is worth well over $100 million today. Bitcoin is also decentralized. There's no one computer that holds the ledger. With Bitcoin, every computer that participates in the system is also keeping a copy of the ledger, also known as the blockchain. So if you want to take down the system or hack the ledger, you'll have to take down thousands of computers which are keeping a copy and constantly updating it. Like most money today, Bitcoin is also digital. This means there's nothing physical that you can touch in Bitcoin. There are no actual coins. There are only rows of transactions and balances. When you own Bitcoin, it means that you own the right to access a specific Bitcoin address record in the ledger and send funds from it to a different address. So what does all of this mean? Why is Bitcoin such big news? Well, for the first time since digital money came into existence, we now have an alternative to the current system. Bitcoin is a form of money that no government or bank can control. Think about the time before the internet, how centralized the flow of information was. Basically, if you wanted information, you could get it from a few major players like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others like them. Today, thanks to the internet, information is decentralized and you can communicate and consume knowledge from around the world with the click of a button. Bitcoin is the internet of money and it's offering a decentralized solution to money. Bitcoin has several advantages over the current system. First, it gives you complete control over your money. With Bitcoin, you and you alone can access your funds. How you actually do this will be explained in a later video. No government or bank can decide to freeze your account or confiscate your holdings. Bitcoin also cuts a lot of the middlemen from the process of transferring money. This means that in many cases, Bitcoin is cheaper to use than traditional wire transfers or money orders. Also, unlike fiat currencies, Bitcoin was designed to be digital by nature. This means you can add additional layers of programming on top of it and turn it into smart money, but more on that in later videos. Finally, Bitcoin opens up digital commerce to 2.5 billion people around the world who don't have access to the current banking system. These people are unbanked or underbanked because of where they live and the reality that they've been born into. However, today, with a mobile phone and a click of a button, they can start trading using Bitcoin. No permission needed. Today, there are several merchants online and offline that accept Bitcoin. You can order a flight or book a hotel with Bitcoin if you like. There are even Bitcoin debit cards that allow you to pay at almost any store with your Bitcoin balance. However, the road toward acceptance by the majority of the public is still a long one. As we continue in this video series, we will break down exactly how Bitcoin works and how to use it. We will learn about Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin wallets, how to buy Bitcoins, and much more. 
The revolution of money began in 2009, and these days we are seeing it change money as we know it. You may still have some questions. If so, just leave them in the comments section below. And if you're watching this video on YouTube and enjoy what you've seen, don't forget to hit the like button. Then, make sure to subscribe for notifications about new episodes. Thanks for joining me here at the Whiteboard. For 99bitcoins.com, I'm Nate Martin, and I'll see you in a bit. Okay, so that made it a little bit clearer. I guess the, a, a person in economics said, hey, here's a new currency, and, uh, you know, and this is how it works, and now it's becoming, I guess, more and more popular. Um, I haven't seen in the supermarkets where I can come up with my groceries and say I'd like to pay in Bitcoin, please. But he did say that there are debit cards, so I guess you could put it on a debit card and pay with your debit card and they don't know if you're paying with uh, bank money or bitcoins as long as they're getting their money so that's very curious okay so what is ethereum ethereum yes that's how you say it um so the same people bitcoin uh, let's see 99 bitcoins is going to explain what is ethereum and they were talking about some kind of contract on uh, cnbc I don't know exactly what they were talking about, but hopefully this piece of audio will make it a little bit clearer. So let's take a listen. What on earth is Ethereum? I mean, I keep hearing about it all the time. I've seen it's the second largest cryptocurrency around, but I just can't seem to wrap my head around it. Is it as revolutionary as Bitcoin? Can it actually change the world as we know it? If you want to have a better understanding of Ethereum, but are tired of explanations that sound like complete technical gibberish, stick around. Here on Bitcoin Whiteboard Tuesday, or should I say Ethereum Whiteboard Tuesday, we'll answer these questions and more. Before we get into Ethereum, we need to do a quick recap about Bitcoin, since it's the basis from which Ethereum was born. By now, you probably know that Bitcoin is a form of decentralized money. And if you still have some questions about what that means or how it works, then you might consider revisiting our original video, What is Bitcoin? Before Bitcoin was invented, the only way to use money digitally was through an intermediary, like a bank or PayPal. Even then, the money used was still government-issued and controlled currency. However, Bitcoin changed all that by creating a decentralized form of currency that individuals could trade directly without the need for an intermediary. Each Bitcoin transaction is validated and confirmed by the entire Bitcoin network. There's no single point of failure, so the system is virtually impossible to shut down, manipulate, or control. Pretty neat, huh? Well, now that we know that money can be decentralized, what other functions of society that are centralized today would be better served on a decentralized system? What about voting? Voting requires a central authority to count and validate votes. Real estate transfer records currently use centralized property registration authorities. Social networks like Facebook are based on centralized servers that control all of the data we upload to them. What if we could use the technology behind Bitcoin, more commonly known as blockchain, to decentralize other things as well? The interesting thing about blockchain technology is that it's actually the byproduct of the Bitcoin invention. 
Blockchain technology was created by fusing already existing technologies like cryptography, proof of work, and decentralized network architecture together in order to create a system that can reach decisions without a central authority. There was no such thing as blockchain technology before Bitcoin was invented. But once Bitcoin became a reality, people started noticing how and why it works and named this thing blockchain technology. Blockchain is to Bitcoin what the internet is to email, a system on top of which you can build applications and programs. A currency like Bitcoin is just one of the options. So this got people very excited and they began to explore what else can we decentralize? However, in order for a system to be truly decentralized, it needs a large network of computers to run it. Back then, the only network that existed was Bitcoin, and it was pretty limited. Bitcoin is written in what is known as a Turing incomplete language, which makes it understand only a small set of orders, like who sent how much money to whom. If you want to create a more complex system, you'll need a different programming language, which means a different network of computers. Imagine for a second you wanted to build your own decentralized program, just like Bitcoin at home. You'd need to understand how Bitcoin's decentralization works, write code that mimics the same behavior, get a huge network of computers to run this code, and so on. And that is a lot of work. Enter Ethereum. Ethereum was first proposed in late 2013 and then brought to life in 2014 by Vitalik Buterin, who at the time was the co-founder of Bitcoin Magazine. Ethereum is the do-it-yourself platform for decentralized programs, also known as dApps, decentralized applications. If you want to create a decentralized program that no single person controls, not even you, even though you wrote it, all you have to do is learn the Ethereum programming language called Solidity and begin coding. The Ethereum platform has thousands of independent computers running it, meaning it's fully decentralized. Once a program is deployed to the Ethereum network, these computers, also known as nodes, will make sure it executes as written. Ethereum is the infrastructure for running dApps worldwide. It's not a currency, it's a platform. The currency used to incentivize the network is called Ether, but more on that later. Ethereum's goal is to truly decentralize the internet. Wait. The internet is centralized? I thought the internet already was decentralized and that anyone can start their own site. While in theory that might be true, in practice, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, and other giants control most of the World Wide Web as we know it. There's almost no activity on the web that happens without some sort of intermediary or third party. But once the concept of digital decentralization was demonstrated by Bitcoin, a whole new array of opportunities became available. We can finally start to imagine and design an internet that connects users directly without the need for a centralized third party. People can rent hard drive space directly to other people and make Dropbox obsolete. Drivers can offer services directly to passengers and remove Uber as the middleman. People can buy cryptocurrencies directly from one another without the need for an exchange that can get hacked or steal your money. Ethereum allows people to connect directly with each other without a central authority to take care of things. It's a network of computers that together combine into one powerful decentralized supercomputer. Okay, so now you know what Ethereum does, but we haven't touched upon how it does it. Ethereum's coding language, Solidity, is used to write smart contracts that are the logic that runs dApps. Let me explain. In real life, all a contract is is a set of ifs and thens, meaning a set of conditions and actions. For example, if I pay my landlord $1,500 on the first of the month, then he lets me use my apartment. 
That's exactly how smart contracts work on Ethereum. Ethereum developers write the conditions for their program, or DAP, and then the Ethereum network executes it. They're called smart contracts because they deal with all of the aspects of the contract, enforcement, management, performance, and payment. For example, if I have a smart contract that is used for paying rent, the landlord doesn't need to actively collect the money. The contract itself knows if the money has been sent. If I indeed sent the money, then I'll be able to open my apartment door. If I missed my payment, I'll be locked out. However, smart contracts also have their downsides. Going back to my previous example, instead of having to kick out a renter that isn't paying, a smart contract would lock the non-paying renter out of their apartment. A truly intelligent contract, on the other hand, would take into account other factors as well, such as extenuating circumstances, the spirit with which the contract was written, and it would also be able to make exceptions if warranted. In other words, it would act like a really good judge. Instead, a smart contract in the context of Ethereum is not intelligent at all. It's actually uncompromisingly letter-strict. It follows the rules down to a T and can't take any secondary considerations or the spirit of the law into account, like what commonly happens with real-world contracts. Once a smart contract is deployed on the Ethereum network, it cannot be edited or corrected, even by its original author. It's immutable. The only way to change this contract would be to convince the entire Ethereum network that a change should be made, and that is virtually impossible. This creates a very serious problem, since unlike Bitcoin, Ethereum was built with the ability to create really complex contracts, and complex contracts are very difficult to secure. With any contract, the more complicated it is, the harder it is to enforce, as more room is left for interpretations or more clauses must be written to deal with contingencies. With smart contracts, security means handling with perfect accuracy every possible way in which a contract could be executed in order to make sure that the contract does only what the author intended. Ethereum launched with the idea that code is law. That is, a contract on Ethereum is the ultimate authority and nobody could overrule the contract. Well, that all came to a crashing halt when the DAO event happened. DAO, or DAO, stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which allowed users to deposit money and get returns based on the investments that the DAO made. The decisions themselves would be crowdsourced and decentralized. The DAO raised $150 million in Ethereum currency, Ether, when Ether was trading at around $20. While this all sounded very good, the code wasn't secured very well and resulted in someone figuring out a way to drain the DAO out of money. Now, you could say that the person who drained the DAO was a hacker, but some would argue that this was just someone who was taking advantage of the loopholes he found in the DAO's smart contract. And this isn't very different than a creative lawyer figuring out a loophole in the current law to affect a positive result for his client. What happened next is that the Ethereum community decided that code no longer is law and changed the Ethereum rules in order to revert all the money that went into the DAO. In other words, the contract writers and investors did something stupid, and the Ethereum developers decided to bail them out. The small minority that didn't agree with this move stuck to the original Ethereum blockchain before its protocol was altered, and that's how Ethereum Classic was born, which is actually the original Ethereum. We've covered a lot up until now, and the last thing I want to talk about is Ethereum as a currency. 
We've already established that Ethereum is basically a large bunch of computers working together like one supercomputer to execute code that powers dApps. However, this costs money. Money to get the machines to power them up, store them, and cool them if needed. That's why Ether was invented. When people talk about the price of Ethereum, they actually are referring to Ether, the currency that incentivizes people to run the Ethereum protocol on their computer. This is very similar to the way Bitcoin miners get paid for maintaining the Bitcoin blockchain. In order to deploy a smart contract to the Ethereum platform, its author must pay to do so. That payment is made in the form of Ether. This is done so that people will write optimized and efficient code and won't waste the Ethereum network computing power on unnecessary tasks. Ether was first distributed in Ethereum's original initial coin offering back in 2014. Back then, it cost around 40 cents to buy one Ether. Today, one Ether is valued in the hundreds of dollars since the use of the Ethereum network has grown immensely due to the ICO hype that started in 2017. Still confused? Don't worry. We'll get more into Ether and mining in a later video. Ethereum's network and Ether are a whole new rabbit hole that we'll cover, but I think this will do for now as an intro to Ethereum. This concludes this week's episode of Ethereum Whiteboard Tuesday. Hopefully, by now, you have a better understanding of what Ethereum is, a network of computers working together to replace the centralized model of programs and companies which run the internet today. You may still have some questions. If so, just leave them in the comment section below. And if you're watching this video on YouTube and enjoy what you've seen, don't forget to hit the like button, then make sure to subscribe for notifications about new episodes. Thanks for joining me here at the whiteboard. For 99bitcoins.com, I'm Nate Martin, and I'll see you in a bit. All right, so I hope that made it a little bit clear about Ethereum. I guess that's how they say it, Ethereum. Um, <laughs> you know, about the contract, that is kind of disturbing. I mean, maybe you need a little... Uh, little digital lawyers in the code or something fighting over what clauses need to be put into such a contract. <laughs> so in this day and age, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, you know, uh, they would just hook into the computer and see what uh, would be a bad clause or a good clause and uh, give it some give it some input uh, as to how to build one of those contracts. So. Uh, I don't know. It's all scary um, to me about using this currency. But I guess, uh, you know, they have a point. If nobody has access to this, uh, the whole, the money as a whole, you can never have it taken away from you, right? Because there are all bunch of computers for different people who can't go in and change anything uh, you know, maybe that is the safest way to make sure you have your money. But if something calamitous happened, uh, would you be able to spend this money, you know, out, um, out in the real world? You know how people hoard gold or silver, the, the doomsday people, if you will. Uh, would you be able to spend Bitcoin? Would you be able to spend this Ethereum? Uh, that's, that's a puzzle that needs to be worked out, I guess. All right, the next uh, audio from a video posted by the Wall Street Journal. Um, they have, um, they're going to explain uh, United States versus China, the battle for Bitcoin mining supremacy. So in order to get the Bitcoin, somebody has to mine it. And that's, a, I guess it's a bunch of code 
that's ran and it takes you know a while to produce one bitcoin running this code and so somebody's got to run the supercomputer or run their computer and run this code to mine bitcoin so it's available for people to buy so let's go ahead and listen to the wall street journal what they have to say about that this is a bitcoin mine hidden deep in the mountains of sichuan in china and its rival is on the other side of the planet at a former factory that used to make denim for levi's you see the transformers lined up on the outside we have a lot of megawatts these two miners make money by providing the massive computing power that's required to process and record a high volume of cryptocurrency transactions. Business was soaring as Bitcoin hit new highs in early 2021. It's hard to sleep. You go to bed at night and you wake up and you look and you go, holy crap, it's still up. Last year, China controlled 70% of the global processing power that runs the Bitcoin network. And that means the majority of the cryptocurrency's global transactions are routed through these computers in China and recorded by miners here. So a group of U.S. miners is raising hundreds of millions of dollars to win a larger share of Bitcoin's processing power. When capitalism in the state decides it wants to get into a market and get into an industry, it moves heavy capital there. They say their work is also meant to protect Bitcoin. Industry insiders say the Chinese government has already cracked down on some crypto entrepreneurs and could potentially disrupt global trading by asking miners in China to block certain users from making transactions. It's better for cryptocurrency to be spread around the globe. So that Bitcoin cannot be manipulated by any single government. I think there will be competition. It's more and more human resources, technology resources that we're putting into this particular new segment. The battle over Bitcoin mining will decide who controls the infrastructure that powers the cryptocurrency. Yu Longliu started mining during the previous Bitcoin rally in 2017. And this is one of the sites he works with that has mined about 8,000 Bitcoins over the past three years, generating about $28 million in revenue over that time period. Miners need cheap electricity, which is abundant in some parts of China, thanks to dams and coal power plants that were built by the state in the past decade. That electricity then powers fast machines that are necessary to solve mathematical problems in order to eventually mint new coins. China is home to the vast majority of mining equipment production, and so miners like Liu always have speedy access to the best technology, like this cooling system. But the industry in China lives with uncertainty. Liu asked to keep the location of the site a secret because he says he's not sure if the government will crack down one day. While mining itself isn't illegal, virtual currency trading and crypto exchanges are banned in China because they're seen as risky to the country's financial system. In the past few months, Bitcoin industry insiders have said that Beijing accused some Chinese miners of money laundering and froze their credit cards, making it difficult for miners to pay operating costs. The Chinese government did not respond to a request for comment. So to help miners develop their business despite the risks, Liu offers loans so miners don't need to go through Chinese banks. His company Bobble Finance lends cryptocurrencies to about 300 miners, including the owners of this site. 
so that they can purchase more equipment at a lower cost and then maintaining the machine itself, including repairs. And Chinese miners are now facing growing competition from overseas. In the United States, we have massive infrastructure, power infrastructure and building infrastructure that's already been built out, and we can convert facilities into large data mining facilities. Russell Can is an American miner who scouts the U.S. for abandoned factories and converts them into mining facilities. His goal? Raise cash to develop industrial-scale mining in the U.S., where until a few years ago, most miners ran small DIY operations. This is my housing for my computers so that uh, the heat is vented outside. So Core Scientific has built a team with former executives from Microsoft and MySpace and put together an ambitious business plan. We have Ernst & Young audited financials. We have a strong balance sheet. We check a lot of boxes for institutional investors that a Chinese miner does not check. The strategy worked. In the past two years, the company has raised $95 million and secured a $20 million loan to install mining rigs and facilities, including a former denim factory in North Carolina and a former carpet factory in Georgia. Core Scientific's power infrastructure can handle the latest mining equipment, which CAN says usually consumes approximately 100 megawatt hours of electricity to mine one Bitcoin. That's the same amount of electricity used to watch television continuously for about 98 years. And tunnels that were once used to cool the factory are now being used to keep chips from overheating. We've got the ability to process 200,000 gallons of chilled water through these pipes to keep the temperature in the building down. Can hopes all this will help him offset a long-running technological disadvantage. He was usually about four months behind his Chinese rivals when it came to accessing the latest rigs, and the price tag was sometimes 50% more expensive. Others are using the same playbook as Can, creating corporations that attract the support of institutional investors who then help fund high-tech mining sites. Industry insiders and academics who study mining say that the U.S. efforts can be good for the future of the cryptocurrency because the original goal of Bitcoin was to create a currency that couldn't be controlled by one entity. The dream was that we would reimagine finance without gatekeepers. And what did we get after 11 years? We got different kind of intermediaries, now mostly nameless, mostly under the covers in China. Emin Gunsire runs a blockchain startup and is also an associate professor at Cornell University. He studies the vulnerabilities of cryptocurrencies and says Beijing might intervene in the market. This is an enormous issue. These miners, they could receive injunctions that compels them to act in a certain way. One request, he says, could be to ask miners to exclude certain people who want to spend or accept bitcoins in the network, essentially blocking transactions. This is what Bitcoin academics call censorship similar to how content and accounts can be blocked on social media platforms in China. The Chinese governments would say that the money at certain addresses must not move, and it compels the Chinese miners to not include certain transactions so they can selectively censor certain users of a blockchain. The Chinese government did not respond to a request for comment. Bobble Finance says if miners in China are asked by the government to intervene in the network, they would have to comply, but that would slow down their operations and eventually diminish their global processing power. But U.S. miners aren't immune to facing scrutiny from financial regulators at home that have proposed plans to hold the industry to the same standards, followed by traditional financial institutions. 
the more immediate resistance to U.S. miners could come from local communities concerned about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining consumes enormous amounts of energy. So all energy that goes to miners is energy that's being directed away from other more useful uses. Kan says nearly half of the electricity used by Core Scientific comes from carbon-free sources. Because China's miners aren't part of a corporate structure like in the U.S., Liu says that they can operate faster and spend less on operating costs. If you multiply the operational costs, China still has an advantage. China will be on the front of the curve into the future. 2021 is all about expansion, and we've built infrastructure, we've built the software, we've built the team to be a long-term player in this market. All right, so that gives you an idea of what's going on with the Bitcoin uh, market. It, you know, it's getting very competitive. And, uh, you know, who knew that uh, Bitcoin mining actually puts a damper on the energy use? I, I guess that would be because if you have to power millions and millions of computers to generate these Bitcoins, uh, that takes a lot of electricity and... Um, like they said, I don't know, they said it takes away from more important things. Well, what are the more important things? And is this a currency that we will eventually all be transferred to? Or is this just like gold, where some people hoard the gold and uh, some people still use the paper money? So that's all questions that probably will be answered in the next few years. Because, um, you know, they they pretty much seem like they worked out you know, uh, how to make the Bitcoins and then how to present it to people to use it. So, and I'm sure there are people out there using it. Um, so it, it, it might be just something that will not replace regular money. It will just be in, in case you have it, you can use it. Like if you have gold people usually hoard the gold so that if the money goes away, they still have the gold to spend on. But, you know, who knows? Maybe Bitcoin's the same way or it's just a simultaneous way of paying for things. So we'll, we'll keep uh, up on that in the next few years to see if it does become more popular. But in the meantime, there are people that are trying to steal uh, bitcoins and if you have bitcoins you probably will want to be aware of the scams that go on uh, regarding bitcoins now they're usually the regular scams that try to separate you and your money um, the same goes for bitcoin they have blackmail scams uh, fake exchanges free giveaways etc you know, the blackmail, of course, is attempts in which strangers threaten you in exchange for Bitcoin as a means of extortion. Uh, one common execution of this method is by email. And as a matter of fact, somebody told me that, oh, yes, actually, <laughs> it was my husband that got the extortion email saying they had uh, naked pictures of him or something like that. Now, it wasn't for Bitcoin. I guess it was for whatever... Uh, money that he was supposed to send them to eradicate these supposed pictures but <laughs> I make a joke of it saying that you know yeah those must be the pictures I sold online of you <laughs> so, I think that's funny but 
so these blackmail uh, emails not only try to separate you and your money, they also try to separate you and, uh, from your Bitcoin. So um, one common execution of this method is by email, where in the sender, uh, where the sender transmits a message claiming that he or she has hacked into your computer and is operating it via remote desktop protocol. Now, you might have seen those uh, even long before where they do that and you're supposed to click and pay the money to for them to release your computer. Well, in this case, they want you to send... Well, the sender provides two options. Send Bitcoin to suppress the material or send nothing and see the content sent to your email contacts and spread across your social networks. But... You know, a lot of the emails they send these to, um, they don't have anything to to extort you with, hopefully. <laughs> so that's not a problem. You could just laugh about it and say, ha-ha, that's it. Uh, there's fake exchanges. As Bitcoin has become more popular, more people have sought to acquire it. Unfortunately, nefarious people have taken advantage of this and have been known to set up fake Bitcoin exchanges. Now, just to let you know, um, this came from Bitcoin.org, all these scams. And I had a friend also who was told to go to a Bitcoin ATM. And I guess she was like, where is a Bitcoin ATM around in this area? Apparently, there's one in North Versailles up by the BP... Uh, gas station somewhere I think because you can go to Google Maps and they'll point out where these Bitcoin ATMs are which I didn't even know existed until she brought that up but uh supposedly these people will set up fake Bitcoin exchanges and then these fake exchanges may trick users by offering extremely competitive market prices that lull them into thinking they're getting a steal with quick and easy access to some cheap Bitcoin. Be sure to use a reputable exchange when buying or selling Bitcoin. Some scammers uh, will say they're it's a free giveaway. Due to the viral nature of how information spreads across on the internet, scammers seek to take advantage of people by offering free giveaways of Bitcoin or other digital currencies in exchange for sending a small amount to register or by providing some personal information. When you see this on a website or social network, it's best to immediately report the content as fraudulent so that others don't fall victim. And then, of course, you have impersonation. Now, unfortunately, it's very easy for con artists to create social media accounts and impersonate people. Oftentimes, they lie in wait until the person they're trying to impersonate publishes content. The impersonator then replies to it with a follow-up message or call to action like a free giveaway using an account that looks almost identical to the original poster or author. This makes it seem like the original person is saying it. Alternatively, the impersonators may also try to use these same fake accounts to trick others via private or direct message into taking some kind of action in an attempt to defraud or compromise. Never participate in free giveaways, and if you receive an odd request via someone in your network, it's best to double-check to confirm the authenticity via multiple mediums of communications. Now, a couple years ago, the FTC... Uh, had an article, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, 
um, oh, actually, it wasn't. Uh, actually, it was a year ago, I guess, this happened. Uh, last year, uh, this is uh, from the article from the Federal Trade Commission. Last year, some high-profile people had their Twitter accounts hacked by scammers who sent out fake tweets asking followers to send money using Bitcoin, a type of cryptocurrency or digital money. Cryptocurrency scams are now a popular way for scammers to trick people into sending money, and they pop up in many ways. Most crypto scams can appear as emails, again trying to blackmail someone, online chain referral schemes, or bogus investment and business opportunities. But here's what they all have in common, and what they have in common with yesterday's Twitter hacks. A scammer wants you to send money or make a payment with Bitcoin or another type of cryptocurrency. Once you do, your money is gone, and there's generally no way to get it back. So if you see a tweet or a text, email, or other message on social media that tells you to pay with Bitcoin, you know that's a scam. Other signs that something's a scam, they might guarantee that you'll make money. Those guarantees are false. Promise that you'll double your money quickly. Again, that's always a fake promise. Or say you'll get free money in dollars or cryptocurrency. Free money? Nope, not ever. If you spot a cryptocurrency scam, report it immediately to the FTC at ftc.gov complaints. All right, other types of Bitcoin scams that can go on. Let's see, uh, we got malware. And again, these are the same scams that people try to separate you from your money. They try to separate you from your Bitcoin if you deal with Bitcoins. Hackers have become very creative at finding ways to steal from people. When sending Bitcoin, always be sure to double or triple check the address you're sending to. Some malware programs, once installed, will change Bitcoin addresses when they're pasted from a user's clipboard so that all of the Bitcoin unknowingly gets sent to the hacker's address instead. Since there is little chance of reversing a Bitcoin transaction once it's confirmed by the network, noticing this after the fact means it's too late and most likely can't be recovered. It's a good idea to be super cautious about what programs you allow to have administrator access on your devices. An up-to-date, reputable virus scanner can also help, but is not foolproof. All right. Also, the same article from uh, bitcoins.org says, uh, beware of meet-in-person scams. When buying or selling Bitcoin locally... A counterparty may ask you to meet in person to conduct the exchange. If it isn't a trusted party that you already know, this is a very risky proposition that could result in you getting robbed or injured. Con artists have also been known to exchange counterfeit fiat currency in exchange for Bitcoin. Consider using a peer-to-peer -peer platform to escrow the funds in place of meeting in person. Pump and dumps. Do not trust people who entice you or others to invest because they claim that they know what the Bitcoin price is going to be. In a pump and dump scheme, a person or persons try to artificially drive up or pump the price so that they can dump their holdings for a profit. All right. 
So they say, keep keep that in mind that when they are artificially driving up the price, um, to look out for that because that might not be the correct uh, price. All right, so scam coins. Be careful when investing in alternative coins. Amongst altcoins, there may be scam coins enticing users to invest via private sales or with pre-sale discounts. Scam coins may feature a flashy website and or boast a large community to create a fear of missing out effect on people who discover it. This helps early holders pump up the price so that they can dump and exit their positions for a profit. Scam coins without large communities may do airdrops, offering free coins or tokens to people in exchange for joining their communities. This enables scam coins to present their initiatives with inflated traction metrics to make investors feel like they're missing out when it comes time for them to decide if they'd like to buy in. Scam coins may also use the word Bitcoin in them in an effort to trick or mislead people into thinking there is a legitimate relationship. All right. So that will about do it for our show for today. I hope you got some kind of education about Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think, uh, you know, because that was always a puzzle to me. I could not wrap my head around all of that. So it's nice to um, be able to, to, to do that uh, finally. All right. So if you have any questions or comments on what you heard on today's show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. This is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. This program is heard Sunday at 4 p.m. and Thursday at 9 a.m. on WMCK, or at least it's Tube City Online, WMCK.FM. Podcasts of these shows are available on wmck.fm slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. I'm Diane Rebecca wishing everyone a safe and good week. <laughs>